This morning, we talk about a broad topic. The, the uh, title of the message this morning is, you got to have faith. Now, for those products of the 80s like me, I'm not going to break out in a George Michael song. Don't worry about that. But the reality of it is we do have to have faith. Faith is the bedrock of how we believe. Everything we do, it is on faith. I love what Jesus said to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, he was often referred to as. I can be a doubting Thomas sometime. Maybe you can. But he was one of the disciples. And he couldn't do it anymore. He said, I know. I've seen the miracles. I know what's happened. I, I, I know what my eyes have seen. But I also saw him get crucified. I just can't believe this anymore. And then the disciples said, hey, he's alive. He's alive, Thomas. And they're like, I just don't believe it anymore. And the Bible says eight days later, he's in a room and with the other disciples. And Jesus just appears to them. And he says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Look at, look at the scars in my hand. Look at, look at the scar on my side. Put your finger in it. And Thomas did that and he said, my Lord and my God. But Jesus said something to Thomas that's encouraging to me. It should be encouraging to you. He said, Thomas, you believe because you see me. Blessed are those who will believe in me, yet they've never seen me. And that's me and you. That's me and you. We live by faith. The opening scripture this morning is found in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. And it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is in the natural, is defined as the ascent of the mind to the truth of a proposition or a statement from which there is not complete evidence. It is belief. In general, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible defines faith as the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. The fact is that we exercise natural faith frequently in our lives. Every time we drive a car, we have faith that the brakes will work. When we get on an airplane, we have faith in the mechanics of the plane and the skill of the pilot to fly the plane. Now, like most of you, I've flown several times. I, I tell you, I'm not afraid to fly, but I'm not a big fan of it either. People love it. I, I, I'm always a little on edge when I'm on that airplane because I have no control. My faith is completely in that pilot, and it's completely in the mechanics of that plane. And I really understood that on a trip when Pastor and I, several years ago, went to Nicaragua. We went to visit the churches that we support there. And for the first time in my life, I flew in an airplane where I could see out the windshield. We flew a jet from Miami to Managua, Nicaragua, which is the uh, capital. But from Managua to Bluefields, where we would be stationed, we, we flew in a little Nicaraguan prop plane. So we, we come out of the airport, and there's that single prop plane. And I'm already a little nervous about that. One, it's Nicaraguan. I don't know anything about their safety measures. Number two, they said, carry your luggage with you and step on this scale before you get on the plane. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, oh, boy. And it's a single prop. So we get on this airplane, and we're flying. And we don't, we don't fly too high in those, and it's kind of neat so you can see everything until we approach the, air, until we approach the uh, runway. And I'm sitting directly behind the pilot, and there's two pilots. And, and another thing that didn't really help is Pastor nudges me. He goes, that guy's asleep. <laughs> you remember that? And I looked over there, and I'm like, one of those pilots is asleep. And he was asleep. I wanted to hit him and smack him and say, wake up and fly this airplane. And so we're flying, and then this, this 
we begin to approach the runway, and I'm looking out the windshield, and I can see the runway, and it looks about that long. And I'm not joking. What I'm about to tell you, I'm not exaggerating. So I start to watch, and I start to watch that plane approach, and that runway still looks that long, and I've got the back of the pilot's seat, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm moving around his head, and I'm looking, and I am this close to grabbing him and saying, pull up, we're not going to make it. <laughs> I was scared to death. And it wasn't until that plane made that last ascent that my eyes could see really how long that runway was. And I said, whew, I'm okay. I'm going to make it. Because it did. It, it, it scared me to death. And it made me think that one day, our faith will be our sight. There's so many questions I still have, folks. There's so many things I really don't know. But one of these days, the Bible says, I'm going to step into His very presence. And I love the way Jude puts it, that he is going to take me and he's going to present me faultless before the throne room of God. And I'm going to see the glory of God and I'm going to see the glory of Jesus and I'm going to see the glory of that city. And all these questions I have and all these things will be eclipsed in that glory. And my faith, it will be my sight. But right now I have to exercise faith until that day comes. Until then, the Scriptures tell us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. But exactly what is it? It's a broad topic. It can be preached on for a full year and not fully understand what it is. But this morning, I want to look at three areas of faith that function in the life of the believer. And the first one, and really the most important, is saving faith. Yeah. It is saving faith. It's that faith that moves within us. We realize that we're completely lost and helpless before a holy God and in need of a Savior. It's that moment when the Holy Spirit begins to do something in your heart. Whether it's at worship, whether it's through someone witnessing, ever how you came to faith in the Lord, you know how it happened. But something happened in your life and faith, saving faith, welled up in you couple things about saving faith. It is a work that only God can do through the Holy Spirit. John 6 and 44, Jesus talking to his disciples, he said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. And Romans 3.11 says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And so how does it happen? See, I, I, love to, I love to go hear testimonies. When I'm traveling in my travels, I love to talk to people. If I meet people who are fellow believers, I like to ask them, tell me how you came to faith in the Lord. What happened? And you know, here's, here's one thing I have yet to hear. And I'm going to share some of the things with you that I do hear. I have yet to hear someone say, well, you know, I got up. I went to the gym. I went to the bank. I ran a few errands. And then I just decided I was just going to go get saved. I have never, maybe you have. I've never heard that testimony. But I have heard testimonies like this. I was raised in it. My mom and dad were believers. They taught me about the Lord. And I believe that's God's primary design. Is that we raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Because those young minds are impressionable. I read a study not long ago that said if, if things of an addictive nature or introduced into a young mind that's 14 or younger, that the chances of them being addicted to that are exponentially high. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's things like pornography. 
So church, in our culture today, why do you think Satan's after the youngest of our children? Why do you think they want to over-sexualize elementary age kids? Because he knows that if I can get into that young mind young, I have a better chance of getting their soul. And that's why it's important for us. That's why it's important what Michael and Christy do. That's why it's important what Chip and, and the others do on Wednesday night with these young people. We must be watchmen on the wall and, over, and oversee our children and tell them there is something different. He's after our children like never before. Other testimonies that I hear. I've heard tracks. I, I heard at church. I've heard a friend witness to me. But it gets them in an un, unexpected time. I'm reminded of a, of a young man that I met. I was, I was in Houston after the floods with the Billy Graham Association. When we would go out, we would have share time at the end of that. And there was a man there, a young man sitting beside me from Riverside, California. And they were sharing, whoever it was that was sharing, referenced a year. And he, he said, I was on the back end of a seven-year meth addiction then. And I was like, whoa. So after we were finished, I said, tell me about this. He said, my life was a mess. He said, and I went to a Greg Laurie uh, conference, crusade. And I've heard people who are critical crusade. There's always somebody going to be critical of something. But you know, pastor just recently preached on the Holy Spirit and it being a wind. And Nicodemus came to the Lord and said, you know, how, do we be, how can I be saved? He said, you must be born again. And that's when Jesus said, hey, you don't see the wind. I don't see the wind blowing around. But I can sit on my porch and see the trees moving. I can see her chime dinging. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that the Holy Spirit is still doing His work. He does it at Bethel. He does it in your home. He does it in your workplace. He does it in the United States. He does it around the world. He hasn't quit working. And he's not going to quit working. He's still drawing people to himself. But he's beginning to tell me that. He said, I went to this Greg Laurie crusade, and I heard the gospel, in, and then I heard the invitation. And when they said, come down front, he said, I, I went, I went, you know what I did? I said, what? I, I, was, I was expecting him to say, I went down front. He said, man, I went to the bathroom. I said, Okay. He said, but when I was in the bathroom, I just could not get it out of my mind. He said, and I walked out of that bathroom, and I walked down there. And here's thousands of people, folks. See, we, thousands of people down in front. And he said, and God convicted me, and I repented of my sin. And this is what he said. He said, and I, got, I left there, and I went, and I got myself. This is the key. This is one of the keys of a true saving faith. I got myself into a good church. And I would come along, I had people come along beside me and help me. And then now he was a chaplain out spreading the gospel. He's still doing work like that. That's saving faith. Saving faith. It's a, it's a work of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's God's free gift of grace to us. And I think too many times here is where Christians get themselves all tied up in maybe theological knots and want to start debating with each other because you start saying, well, if, if it's a free gift and if it's saving faith and if he's going around, how come everyone who doesn't receive? What about this predestination? What about the elect? What about all these doctrinal things? I don't know about all that stuff. But what I do know is that Romans 1 tells me that God in some way reveals himself to every single man and woman. It said that 
by, by nature, His divine qualities, His eternal power is evident to every person that we are at without excuse. So somehow God deals with the heart of everyone. Ecclesiastes said He has put eternity in every person's heart. I don't believe there's a person alive who hasn't at some point said, there's more to life than this. There's something more than this. And then the writer of Hebrews said, today, when you hear his voice, and I want to tell you this morning, church, if this is the morning that you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart as you begin to feel that pull of the Holy Spirit. Don't harden your heart when you feel God drawing you to Himself. Because Paul goes on to say that today is the day of salvation. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I don't believe that fear is the best way to, to deal with people when it comes to salvation. But we know we're not promised tomorrow. That's why today is the day of salvation. Every person has a destiny, an appointment time with God. And He wants to prepare us for that appointment. Today is the day of salvation. It comes to repentance. Wow. Don't hear that a lot anymore. But we must repent. What does that mean? It must mean we turn from our sins. We turn from our... We know there's things in my life that are not pleasing to God. And when we repent, we all must repent before, the, before a holy God. Every one of us must repent before a holy God. And say, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And when that's done with the heart, when the Holy Spirit pulls, and that's done with a heart of truthfulness and sincerity, the God of heaven will come in and He will revolutionize and change your life. And it produces a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I wish I could tell you that's instantaneous that everything you deal with, every uh, sin in your life is just going to be and you're going to walk a perfect life. I don't think that's, that's not been true in my life. But I will tell you, your, your approach to sin will change. It will grieve your spirit. There's things in my life that still grieve my spirit. And it changes us. And He begins to change us. The book of 1 John the book of 1 John is a book of assurance. I would encourage you, if you've never read the book of John, 1 John, if it's been a while since you've read the book of 1 John, go read the book of 1 John. In the very, it's only five chapters. Read it this week. Take your Bible and read 1 John. And in the very last chapter of that, it says this. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. He don't want to have guessing about whether or not we're his child. He wants us to know it. He wants us to have assurance in it. And if there's any one thing Satan will do, he'll get inside your ear and he'll say, you're not one of his. You don't belong to him. You've been too bad. You've done too much. He'll make you doubt who you are in Christ. But there's, a little, there's several scriptures and there's a little three-point test. Every one of them comes out of 1 John that I want to share with you this morning. Because Paul said, examine yourselves and make sure that you're of the faith. And I apply this test to my life first. But I also apply it to those who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I believe. Because belief does, behavior follows belief. And this is it. First, you have an aversion to sin. That means that 
you try to stay away from sin. One commentator I read put it this way. There's a decreasing pattern of sin in your life. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do I do when sin rears its ugly head in my life? I confess it. I repent it before God. And I say, Lord, that's not, I don't want this in my life. And then I'll put practical things in place to keep that away from me. And it still rears its ugly head, whether it's in thought and deed. But then we have a prescription. We have a way that we deal with it. 1 John 2 and 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I was thinking about that. I thought, what is love of the world? We know that the world is the system, the world's system and what it values. But as I thought about that, I, I summed it up with one thing. It's self. It is self. It's all about me. What I want, what makes me happy, how I feel. That is the love of the world that gratifies our desires rather than doing what the Lord did and coming and surrendering ourselves to him and submitting ourselves to the love and the cause of our fellow man. 1 John 3 and 6, and I had this in the NIV, it says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That's the question, folks. Is there a pattern and practice of sin in someone's life? And if it is, I question, and scripturally, I don't believe they've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't believe they're going to live outside of the sexual bonds of marriage that God has prescribed for us. I don't believe they're going to hate people of different races. I don't believe they're going to be perpetually greedy. And all the things that we see going on in our world today, it's not going to be part of the pattern and practice of their lives. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Saving faith. Many of you have experienced that. I think most everyone in here has experienced that. But if you're here this morning, you have it. If you're here this morning and something has pricked your heart, whether it's during the worship, during the message, we, we end in an altar, I want to challenge you this morning. You hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Genuine faith. Genuine faith. This is the faith that shows the depth of our saving faith. It's just an extension of that saving faith. I ask myself, am I ready to stand firm in my faith when the trials of life come or persecution becomes or comes because of my faith? 1 Peter 3, 1 through 9. I'm sorry, 1, 3 through 9. I want to read this a little bit long, but I want to read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom in having not seen you love, 
though now you do not see him, yet believing. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's dealing with trials. He was writing to a very persecuted church. Nero was the emperor. Nero blamed everything on the Christians. He had put them under heavy persecution, both socially and physically. And Peter writes this to them, and he tells them that trials are coming. Their trials were already there. But trials have a purpose. Everyone faces trials of life. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus said this, and he's talking to his disciples. He said that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. His Son rises on the evil and on the good. It sends rain on the just and the unjust. I wish I could tell you that when you come to faith in the Lord, that life is just going to be a bed of roses. You're never going to have any more problems. It's going to be your best life now. That's not, that's not how it works, church. We're going to face the trials of life. We're going to face sickness. We're going to face death. We're going to have job loss. Many things that, that those are outside of his saving faith, face. But we face them with him. We face them with peace. We face them with a joy that they don't understand. And he walks with us through those things. I wish I could tell you nobody else is going to get sick. Nobody else is going to, get, going to die. That's just, but I'm going to tell you that day's coming. That day's coming. When we live forever in heaven, that day's coming. But that day is not now. We will face the trials of life. Peter says here, he says, uses the word in, in verse 6 of that, if need be, indicating those trials have a purpose. Those trials may have a purpose. Not always. Not always. I talk to some folks sometime that, that say, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know why God's put me through this. And the answer is, I don't know either. But I just know that we are all subject to the fall. Sickness, death, trials is all part of that original fall. But sometimes there are, God in His sovereignty, He does have a purpose in the trials in our life. One might be discipline. Psalm 119 and 67, the psalmist said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Sometimes sickness and sorrow and the trials of life can draw people to the Lord. It can soften their heart for the receiving of the word. It may be spiritual growth. Paul, I'm just going to summarize 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. But this was the thorn in Paul's flesh. Paul had experienced some pretty extraordinary things. He had been exalted to see things. Up in a third heaven, it said, to experience some supernatural things, to see healings. But Paul said, but a thorn has been put in my flesh to buffet me. In other words, to keep me humble, lest I get cocky, really. And he said, I prayed three times that the Lord would take that from me. God, take this thing from me. Take this thing from me. And there's been all kinds of speculation out there on what Paul's thorn was. Some say it was a physical ailment. Some say it was his eyesight. Some say it was someone who was just a thorn in his side in his ministry. Some say it was a sin that, that, that perpetually bothered him in his life. I don't know. And I think in the, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, I don't think he wanted us to know because we can apply that in our lives. He said, Paul, I'm not taking it from you. But he said this. He said, my grace my grace, my grace, my unmerited favor is sufficient for you. And I know that some of you in here are facing trials of life. Some of you are facing sickness. Some of you face death in your family. Some things that's going on that you don't know why. 
And you said, Lord, heal me. Lord, take this away from me. Lord, change this. And we'll pray because we believe that God does still heal. We believe God does still deliver. But we also know there's a time when God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll sustain you in this. I'll be with you in this. And that's what he told Paul. And I feel like if anybody had a right to be delivered from his trial, it would have been the Apostle Paul. A man that had given all of his life, his entire life had been dealt with things that most of us that we'll never deal with. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Trials are varied. James 1, 2 through 4 said, My brethren, count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are controlled by God. None of of the things that you deal with in your life or I've dealt with in my life, they don't catch God off guard. God controls it all. Remember the story of Job? Satan came to God and said, hey, let me get at your servant Job. You've protected him. He's blessed. He's got everything. He's a wealthy man. He's got a wonderful family. You let me take all that from him and he'll curse you. And God said, go ahead. He said, you can't take his life, but go ahead. And he took all Job had. His children died. He took his stuff. He lost his cattle. In our world today, it would be like he lost all of his children. He lost his job. They seized everything he had. Even his wife said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? But not Job. And we have to come to God initially with the heart of Job to say, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. And he did. He trusted him. They're controlled by God. They reveal the depth and genuineness of our faith. In 1 Peter 1 and 7, Peter uses the illustration of a goldsmith that uses fire to burn out impurities. It has been said that the eastern goldsmith kept metal in the fire until he could see his face reflected in it. The Lord may keep us in the furnace until we reflect his glory. I don't like that very much, I can tell you. God's been good to me. He's blessed me. There's been a many a time I've asked, God, what would I do if you did to me what you did to Job? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I ask myself that a lot. But Paul in Romans 8 and 18 said this. Christy, you don't have this, so don't worry about it. Paul said this, For I consider the sufferings at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. I don't know what you're dealing with, church. I know some of you are dealing with some some heavy things. But God knows all about it. His grace is sufficient for you. One day we won't deal with it anymore, and His glory will be revealed in you. You know, sometimes I think God's presence and glory and the fact that we are His people is revealed more often in our suffering and trials than it is in the good times. Because whether, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's your coworkers, if they're watching you at any time, they're watching how you walk it out when it ain't easy. And anybody can do it when it's easy. But what about when the bad news comes? What about when the healing don't come? What about when something happens to you just like it's happening to them? They watch you. And quite frankly, I've watched a lot of you. 
And I watched you stay faithful to God in spite. And it reveals genuine faith. Lastly, is miraculous faith. It's commonly referred to as the gift of faith. It's one of the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 9. We believe all the gifts still function today. All the gifts are still for the church today. For what? So we can look hyper-spiritual? So we can look more holy than everyone else? No, Paul made it clear that the gifts were for the edification of us all. It's for the edification of the church. It's to build up the church, to build up the believer. And one of those gifts is faith. It's wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. But one of those is faith. Jack Hayford said, It supernaturally trusts and does not doubt with reference to the specific matter involved. It is that faith, it's the, it's the miracle of faith that you need in a moment of supernatural circumstances. When I think about it, I think about the first person I think about is the stoning of Stephen found in Acts 7. Here's Stephen. He was the first new, uh, early church martyr. And they were going to stone him. He had just blistered the religious right of his day. And they weren't hearing it. And they were going to stone him to death. Could you imagine being stoned to death? I, I think we read that and it just rolls off our tongue. Yeah, he got stoned. Could you imagine being stoned to death? What a, what a gruesome death that would be. But Stephen was going to be stoned to death. And as they began to throw the stones, the Bible says that the heavens opened up and he could see God. He could see the Son of God standing there. He could see the glory of God. And supernatural faith began to function in his life. To the point he died and the last words on his mouth was, Lord, don't, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this against them. The stoning of Stephen. Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was a Lutheran evangelical priest with a Jewish descent. He's written several books. One of them, the most well-known, was Tortured for Christ. I had a chance to go see that documentary a few years ago in the movie theater. It's incredible. He was instrumental in protecting the Jews during the Holocaust. And he wouldn't stop preaching. And so they captured him. They captured his family. He was in, put in prison several times for different stints. It's said that they would put him in some type of contraption to bear, to, to bear the bottom of his feet. And it would beat his feet till the meat come off. And that's pretty gross, but that's what they did. But he would never deny the Lord. Never deny the Lord. And I remember one scene in that movie in particular just struck me. And he was, he was held in solitary confinement most of the time. And, he, and the way he got through, he said he would sleep at at, during the day and stay awake at night. And he would prepare sermons in his head and then preach the sermons by himself in the, in the jail. But one night, at, late at night, he was praying. And this was, in the, this was a, a clip in the movie. And I guess one of the guards happened to be up late. And he'd come in and he slung that door open. He said, we've taken everything you've got. We've taken your family. We've taken all of your material possessions. We've got you here in solitary confinement. What could you possibly be praying for? He looked up at the guard and he said, you? That's, that's miraculous faith, church. See, me and my personality and, and, and my police background, as soon as he opened that door, I believe I'd have lit on him and see if I could whoop him and get out of that, get out of that place. That's not, what, that's not what he did. He said, I'm praying for you. 
miraculous faith. Cassie Bernal. Cassie was born to Misty and Brad Bernal on November 6, 1981. Along with her brother Chris, she was brought up in a Christian home. According to her parents, she rebelled as a young teenager and began using drugs and alcohol. And then at one point, she became suicidal. Her, her mother found letters in her bedroom discussing her thoughts of killing her parents, and they decided to send her to a new school, Columbine High School. Well, a new start. A year and a half before her death, Bernal decided to go on a weekend church retreat and restored her faith. Her father said when she came back from that retreat, she was an entirely different person. We had gotten our daughter back. Just a, few more, just a few short months later, Eric Harris would go into Columbine High School. He would go into the cafeteria where Cassie Bernal was hiding. And he'd put a shotgun to her and he'd say, do you believe in God? And she would say yes, and he would take her life. Miraculous faith. Miraculous faith. Or maybe the ten Egyptian Christians who not too long ago were paraded out on a beach by ISIS, told to deny the Lord or they would kill him, behead him. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They were beheaded. Am I prepared for that? I hope so. But here's what I know. Our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. Our God is powerful. And at the moment that you need, you trust Him, you belong to Him, you're one of His sons and His daughters, when the time comes that you need miraculous faith, God will provide for you what you need. It might be in a healing, or it might be in a time like this when you have to make a choice. And we see people all the time, even in our culture today, having to make some choices. We're not in a time in our culture where we're having to make choices over our very lives here in America, here in the Western church. But we've watched people. I had a chance to go see Baronelle Stutfin. That may, name may not mean anything to you all. I've been following her case, and I had a chance to go see her in person in Raleigh. But she owned a florist out in Washington State. She'd had it for years. She had a customer who was a friend of hers. They had a close relationship. He happened to be gay. He had a partner, and they were going to get married. She came, he came to her and said, I want you to do the, wed the, the flowers at my wedding. I want you to come and be the flower person there. She said, look, I'll provide all the flowers for you that you want, but I can't come be a part of that. I'm, violating, I'm, it would, it would be, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable doing that. He said, that's fine. He goes out. He's okay with it, but he goes to his partner, and the state of Washington come after him with everything they had. And I listened to her testimony. It was up into the Supreme Court and all those things, and I listened to her. And her attorney was with her in Raleigh, and he asked her, he said, so what happens if you lose? And that's where she got emotional, and she said, this is where I will get emotional. She said, me and my husband will lose everything we've had that we've worked for for 50 years, our home, our savings accounts, everything we got. But she had such a faith in the Lord. She said, you know, my faith in him, my testimony for him, what he's done for me is more important than any of that. Miraculous faith. I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know if I could do that. I'm just being honest about me. I'm, can I do that? Could I be Job? Could I be Cassie Bernal, Richard Wormbrand? Could I be Baronel Stutzman? What I believe is I believe when the time comes, God's going to give me what I need. He's going to give you what you need. But it all starts with saving faith. That's where it all begins, church. I'm going to ask Matt and the team to come to the podium. I want to ask you this morning... 
Do you have saving faith? See, I believe regardless of where you are when you walk with the Lord, God's dealt with you. Because, see, He loves you. That's what it all boils down to. Sometimes I don't think we hear that enough is that God loves you. He created you. It says He knows the hairs on your head. That's how much He knows about you. He created you in His very image, and what He wants is for a relationship to be restored with Him, a relationship that has been broken. And only He can do that. And so if you're here this morning as they begin to play, I'm going to ask every person if they would to bow their head and close their eyes. And as the music plays briefly, I just want to say, if you're here this morning, and you said, Larry, I don't know. I know God's dealt with me, but I've never surrendered myself. This morning, I think I want, I got some things I need to make right. I got some things that are not right between me and God. And I know it. I've been running from it. I ran from it for a while. I was raised in it. In my early 20s to about early 30s, I kind of ran from it a little bit myself. But boy, he never got away from me. And I never got too far from him, honestly. But you can run for a little while, but he's always drawing. He's always drawing. If he's drawing you this morning, I want you to come down and let us pray with you. Unfortunately, I think so. I think the main thing that keeps people from getting what God wants for them is pride. Well, what are they going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm some kind of Jesus freak or something? Well, let me tell you, don't worry about what people are going to think about you. So they're going to play for just a minute. And I want to just give just an opportunity.